If you would, turn your, in your Bibles to Mark chapter 13, uh, verses 32 through 37. Mark chapter 13, verses 32 through 37. Uh, this is our, our last sermon in the six-part series we've been doing on Mark. Uh, where we've gone through, we've seen uh, from sort of the beginning of the gospel towards the end of the gospel. Obviously, we know what happens at the end of the story. We'll talk about that today with Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. But I thought that this was a very important passage and a good passage to end on as we get to Mark chapter 13, verses 32 through 37. So we'll go ahead and we will read this passage now, uh, starting in verse 32. Now concerning that day or hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Watch, be alert, for you don't know when the time is coming. It is like a man on a journey who left his house, gave authority to his servants, gave each one his work, and commanded the doorkeeper to be alert. Therefore be alert, since you don't know when the master of the house is coming whether in the evening or at midnight or at the crowing of the rooster or early in the morning. Otherwise, when he comes suddenly, he might find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to everyone, be alert. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father, we we thank you for this day that you've given us. We thank you for this time we have to gather together to look at your word, to look at what you say to us. God, I pray that today as we look at what it, it means to anticipate your return, what it means to, to be alert, to be ready for that day, I pray that you would help us to, to lay aside any distractions, anything that would keep us from anything but submission and obedience to you, to following you faithfully in all that we do. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So if you weren't able to gather from the beginning, the beginning of this passage and what preceded this passage is the idea that Jesus is going to come again. The Son of Man is going to come. And so that is the first point we see. Jesus is coming back. It's a reality we all need to be prepared for. We all need to know is that Jesus is coming back. And we saw in this passage, now concerning that day, the day of his return, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. I feel like that's a pretty clear statement. It's pretty clear. If, if you were to read that, you were to ask, can you know when Jesus is going to return? The answer would be no. Very clear. Despite this, many people have made attempts to figure out and identify exactly when Jesus would return. One, there, there's a few examples of these. Harold Camping was, was a Christian radio personality and a biblical numerologist. These were people who looked through the Bible and believed there were hidden messages beyond what was written. And he had decided he found dates for the return of Christ. He predicted Judgment Day would occur in 1994. That was the year I was born. Uh, it didn't happen. I'm here. We're all here today. Um, and then he later predicted it would happen in May 21st, 2011. And then he moved back, that, back to October of that year. Now, one interesting thing about this prediction, which I don't think happens in all cases, uh, was that he actually ended up repenting of this effort to decide Christ's return. This is what he said in a a statement a couple years before he passed away. God has humbled us through the events of May 21st to continue to be more fervently, to even more fervently search the scriptures, not to find dates, but to be more faithful in our understanding. I think that's very important. That is what we should be doing is to search the scriptures, not for 
ideas or secret messages, but to be faithful in understanding who God is. Uh, there was a, an offshoot of Christianity, the true way, which was Hong Ming Chen founded a religion that blended Christianity, Buddhism, and UFO conspiracies to where uh, in 1988 he expressed that UFOs disguised as clouds uh, would come to save people who bought their spots on those, those UFOs. Um, and then this was, I thought, the most interesting. In 1806, uh, there was a, at one point a hen that was regarded, regarded as a prophet, the prophet hen of Leeds, where a hen appeared to lay eggs with the message, Christ is coming, uh, though it actually was an effort of Mary Bateman, the, the hen's owner, who had a very interesting and crime-filled life. This was a deception that she intentionally did to convince people uh, that the end was near. So many people have tried to predict the end. People have tried to predict Christ's return, but many, every single one of them have failed. Jesus makes it clear that no matter when we think he's coming, no matter how much we may look at the world around us and see the signs, see the examples, we will not be able to know. We are not going to know when he will return. There are a few things that we, we should take and consider. The first is that he will return. This is a promise. He will return. His return is closer every single day. And we should focus less on when he will return and focus more on being prepared for the return of Christ when it does occur. Now, then I think we get to a point of confusion in this passage where we look and we see, nor the Son. Now, concerning this day or hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son. Now, this begs the question. We, we know and we see in Scripture that Jesus is God. He is God in the flesh. So does this mean that he was imperfect in his knowledge? Was he ignorant? Was there something that Jesus, omniscient, God in the flesh, did not know? What we can most likely understand this to be is a result and a consequence of the incarnation of Christ. When Jesus was in the flesh, there were many things, many aspects of his deity that he laid down so that he could walk in the flesh and he could be our Savior. Jesus was in one place at one time when he was in the flesh. And as a consequence of his incarnation, we see that he laid certain things of his deity aside. We look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8 who existed in the form of God, this is speaking about Jesus, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Jesus was the ultimate example to us of what it looks like to have great power and authority and to lay it down for the sake of others. It is through Christ's willing condescension that he laid down such knowledge and submission to the Father's will. Now in Acts chapter 1, verse 7, when he appears to the disciples before he leaves, they ask him, are you going to restore Jerusalem at this time? And what he says to them, it is not for them to know the times or periods that the Father has set. At this point, he does not indicate that he is unaware of when that will happen. He just says it's not for the disciples to know. So this statement that, that for many, if, you, if you're looking at things and you believe who God is, you believe who Jesus is, that could almost be a little bit of a stumbling block to you, nor the Son. But, but I believe that, that this is an indication that he has laid aside such knowledge for that period of time as a result of the incarnation. And so then I think it's important that we look and we, we realize, so what are the signs of this end that is to come? Now, now we cannot know when he will return, 
We cannot know the day, but all through the previous chapter, Jesus gives signs, gives times, gives things to look for that will indicate when Christ will return. So some signs that Scripture gives concerning the return of Christ. There will be the destruction of the temple. There will be many who will come that claim to be Christ. There will be wars and rumors of wars. Nation against nation. Earthquakes and famines. And then Jesus says in, in this passage that this is only the beginning of birth pains. All right, this is the beginning. All of these things that we've seen are the beginning of birth pains. If you think about when, when a woman has a baby, it can, it can often take a long time. Labor can last a long time. The beginning of the birth pains. There'll be great persecutions, believers flogged in synagogues. The gospel must be preached to all nations. There'll be the great tribulation, false messiahs. The sun will be darkened. The moon will not shed light. Stars falling from the sky and the powers in heavens will be shaken. Here's some pretty intense realities. And if we look at some of those things, we can see those things in our world, right? If you look through history, there've been wars. There's been rumors of wars. There's been, there's been famines. There's been all sorts of things, earthquakes, famines, massive things that make people think the end is near. Many people with COVID have looked at that as an example. There are major things happening, and they think it signifies the end, the return of Christ. Now, whether it does or does not, he certainly, his return is approaching. It is nearer. So we ask the question, what will it be like when Jesus returns? They will see the Son of Man coming in, great, in clouds with great power, in glory. In Revelation 19, 11 through 16, it says, Then I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True, and with justice he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a fiery flame, and many crowns were on his head. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses wearing pure linen, a sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule over them with an iron rod. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God, the Almighty. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then we see in Revelation also in, in chapter 20, verse 15, the coming judgment. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So Jesus is going to return. I think sometimes we forget exactly what that means. Jesus came, as we saw in Philippians, as a servant. He emptied himself, took on flesh, became lower. He lowered himself for our sake to become a sacrifice for us. He, he died on the cross as a propitiation, as a as our sacrifice for our sin was raised again. And, and through that, we have the good news that we can be reconciled to God. We can be made right with God. Our sins can be forgiven. But he, he ascended to heaven and he said, I'm coming back. The biblical depictions of Christ's return are not the same as the Christ we, we saw in the Gospels that suffered with and bore the sin of man. The, the, the same God that was here for people's sin, he is coming back to judge sin. He is coming back with the sword. And those whose names are not written in the book of life, it says, will be cast into the lake 
of fire. There is judgment. There is punishment for sin. We cannot erase that reality. The good news we have hoped in is that we have been saved because of what Christ has done. But that means that before we were saved, that was what we were headed for. The wrath of God burned against us. And is coming for those who do not know and have not made Christ their Savior. And in some ways, we, we anticipate the return of Christ because for us, that means great things. We get to be in a place where there's no mourning or crying or pain, all these things, all these prayer requests that we have to mention. Those won't be existent in eternity. We will enjoy Christ forever. We will enjoy God forever. And that's wonderful. And we should look forward to that as believers. But it should also terrify us for those who do not know Christ. Jesus says he is coming soon. Revelation twenty two twenty. He who testifies about these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And even at the time of the writing of scriptures in 2 Peter 3, 9, people were saying that Jesus was being a little too slow. But that was really close to his, his death and resurrection. And we're 2,000 years removed. But these words ring true. The Lord does not delay in his promise as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Do you realize that Christ putting off his return, his, his return being longer is an act of grace for those who are not saved? That, his, that the anger and wrath of God still burns against sin. And, and judgment is coming. And it is because of those people who are in the pathway of his, his wrath that he has not returned. Not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. So what we see is clear. And this is a very minuscule and small look into the end times. Okay? This is not by any means exhaustive. This is just a very brief look into the return of Christ. So some things that are clear is that Jesus said he's coming soon. Jesus said he's coming soon. For Christians, this return will be glorious. For non-Christians, his return will be dreadful. You know, the Bible talks about how one day every knee will bow before God. For some of us, that will be bowing in celebration of our, of our hope realized. And for some, that will be bowing in despair and realizing what they have done. And so what we see is that before he returns, Jesus has left us with a task. Jesus left us with a task. And he starts us saying, It is like a man on a journey who left his house, gave authority to his servants, and gave each one his work, and commanded the doorkeeper to be alert. So this man goes away and he leaves them with a task, with an expectation they would complete it. And then he called them to be alert. They did not know when he would return. They had a task, didn't know when he was coming back. It was expected the task would be complete. So we have a task that we have been given. And I think as Southern Baptists, uh, we are keenly aware of what that task is. In reality, if you were here on Wednesday night, uh, a few Wednesdays ago, you heard kind of the history. Uh, we tried to do a rushed history from Acts to now, and the whole purpose of the, the conventions of Baptists, the Southern Baptist Convention, was for independent churches to work together for the cause of missions, 
to reach the world. The idea that through cooperation, we can better fulfill the Great Commission. And, and I know you know it, you've heard it, but let's look at it again. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Jesus came near to them and said, All authority on heaven, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the, very, to the end of the age. Our task is the proclamation of the gospel to make disciples in all nations. To take this good news about why Jesus came in the flesh, why he died on the cross, and share that with the whole world. Because it's the hope of the world. It's the hope for those who are dying in their sin. The hope that they can be saved, they can be made right with God. And it is essential that we know what we are called to proclaim in this world. I think that's one of the major issues we first have to get past is, so we're called to share the gospel. Do we know what the gospel is? Do Christians know what the gospel is? There are some very problematic beliefs of self-identified Christians. In this nation, it's rapidly declining, but around 63% of people still say they are Christians. Now, if you've heard stats before, that might seem a lot lower to you because in like 2000, that was much closer to like 75, 80%. Drastically decreasing. But this large group entertains a wide range of perspectives that are not in harmony with biblical teachings. Among the errant perspectives most widely embraced. This is from a survey. 72% argue that people are basically good. 71% consider feelings, experience, or the input of friends and family as their most trusted sources of moral guidance. 66% say that having faith matters more than which faith you pursue. So so don't miss that. Two-thirds of people who identify as Christians say that believing in something matters more than what you believe in. That is not what Scripture says. There is salvation by no name other than Jesus. But two-thirds of of Christians don't believe that by their own admission. 64% say all all religions of faith are of equal value. 58% believe that if a person is good enough or does enough good things, they can earn their way into heaven. 58% contend that the Holy Spirit is not a real living being, but is merely a symbol of God's power, presence, or purity. 57% believe in karma. And 52% claim that determining moral truth is up to each individual. There are no moral absolutes that apply to everyone all the time. That's shocking. It should shock you that in a country where where Christianity is on the decline, even those who claim Christianity don't hold biblical views. Based on these surveys, only 9% of self-identified Christians have a biblical worldview. 9%. So since there's so much inconsistency, we must make sure that we have a solid understanding of what the gospel is. What is the gospel? I think it is found very clearly in one of the earliest and most favorite Bible verses that people encounter. John 3, 16, but we're going to include 17 and 18. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. For God did not send his son in the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned 
because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. Jesus Christ came into this world, laid his life down on the cross, was raised again so that we would not perish, but have eternal life. So that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. This is the hope of the world. This is the gospel, the good news that men are men and women are sinners, condemned because of their own actions. It says whoever does not believe is condemned already. We are already condemned. That is our default state, is separation from God because of our sin. But Jesus stepped in and changed things. But this must be proclaimed. This must be believed. How can they believe if they've not heard? And how can they hear unless someone preaches the good news? There's an urgency to this task. We, we must look at the proclamation and the sharing of the gospel with a lost and dying world as an urgent matter because there is one of two ways that very soon we will all face our creator. Either Jesus is coming back and that could happen at any point in time or we will die. And this life is very fleeting. It's very short. Sometimes I had two grandparents that lived to be 103 in the scheme of eternity, 103 years is a very short period of time. And when it is over, it is over. And we know all too well that sometimes you don't get as much as you would think you would want. We don't, people don't have as long of a life as, as we might want them to have. But it's urgent. We don't know when Christ will return. And that makes fulfilling the task unknowable. Now, I don't know about you, and, and for some of you, it may have been a while since you've had things like schoolwork to turn in, but um, there are surveys that suggest that more than 70% of college students engage in procrastination, more than 70%. Um, now, I have to be honest with you, I was one of those people, okay? Now, it was never something that had an effect on my grades. I actually kind of always argued that I did better work when I had pressure, um, but we can't look at sharing the gospel as something we can procrastinate. We don't know when the due date is. Right? So an example of this is the last assignment I had to do for, for my master's degree. And one of the, the hardest classes I took was my Hebrew class. And we had to do an a, uh, overview outline of the eighth chapter of 1 Samuel. And it took a long time. It wasn't something you could just replicate. It wasn't like a paper that was your own opinion that you could just rewrite again. It was work that once it was done, if it, you lost it, it was gone. Thankfully, thankfully, this was the one task I did not procrastinate on uh, to a major. I turned it in like five days early. I was very proud of myself, very happy. But what I didn't know is that a day after I turned that in, still three, four days to the due date, the computer I'd been working on completely bricked, would not charge, could not get anything off of it. It was gone. If I had not turned that in, it would have been gone. And I would have had to have started over with no time to finish it. This is what the return of Christ is like for Christians. We have a task. We don't know when he will come, but when he does, there is no more time to complete the task. There is urgency to sharing the gospel. Can you imagine being in a room with people that you know and people that you love that are lost, when Christ returns and you look around and you realize that these people have no chance. They're condemned because of their own actions. But how would it feel to know that you had the truth that could save them and did not share it for one reason or another? 
The sad reality is that many Christians view the responsibility to evangelize as something to put off, something someone else will do. 95% of all Christians have never won a soul to Christ. 95%. 80% of all Christians do not consistently witness for Christ. Less than 2% are involved in the ministry of evangelism. 71% do not give toward the financing of the Great Commission. This is even scarier when we look at the reality of man's relationship to God. The, man, the number of people who claim to be Christians, as we mentioned, continues to decline. Church attendance and membership have been declining, and now there are more people in this nation who are not members of a church. And that, for that survey, it included other faiths, other like, like mosques or, or synagogues, so not the Christian faith. More people are not members of a church than are members of a church, which that doesn't indicate salvation necessarily, but it's, not a, it's, a, it's a pretty good indicator that more than half of the people in America don't know Christ. And across this world, there are billions of people who do not know Jesus. There are some that have never even heard of his name. And this points to a clear and inescapable fact. Do we believe what the Bible says? Do we believe that all people are sinful? Do we believe that apart from salvation in Christ, people would be condemned to hell? Do we believe that Jesus died so people can be reconciled to God? Do we believe that Christ died for all who would call upon his name? If we believe these things, we must act. There is an urgency to share the gospel. Are we doing all that the task we've been given demands us to do? This week as I was looking at this sermon, preparing, and God was working on my heart, I was driving... um, I think it's South Barker. Is that the one that's over by Wrights where you come by the Wrights Sports Complex? And I was driving by and turned there by that gas station, and I was burdened by how many houses there are. I'm from a small town, rural Kentucky, okay? I was burdened by how many houses there were. And so I, I this week, took my maps on my phone, or on my, my iPad, actually, and, and kind of zoomed in to where that street was the, the marker, and that's about a mile from the church, down Broadway, to South Barker or North, whatever, whichever one it is. It's about a mile. So I had about a mile radius from the church. And I, I took a screenshot and I, and I counted how many houses were there. You can see it on the screen. I counted how many houses were there. There are 1,850 houses within a mile of this church. If we take the national average of 2.2 people per household, that is 4,000 people within a mile of this church. That's more than the, the whole uh, population of the, the city I'm from, within a mile. If you go further, we know USI is right down the road. We know there's other neighborhoods right down the road outside of this. And, and to be fair, the, the mile goes to the edges of the screen, so it didn't even go a mile up and down. 4,000 people within a mile of this church. And if we look at just the statistics of our nation, half of them, 2,000 people, don't know Jesus. Have they heard the gospel? Have we preached it to them? Have we gone and fulfilled the task? Just even right where we are. If you think about where you live, I know where I live is more densely populated than where this church is. Look at all the green, all the, all the non-house places. There are 150,000 people in Evansville just in Evansville. Have they had the gospel preached to them? 
We must be a gospel-focused church. We must seek the lost. We must fulfill the task that Christ has given to us. I want you to, to consider the word be alert. In Greek, this is gregorete. This is the idea to, to stay awake, be watchful, to be in constant readiness, to be on the alert. We're to be on the alert because Christ is coming back. This is the same word that Jesus used to his disciples when he was in the garden. He said, stay awake, be alert, watch with me, be, be alert, stay awake with me. It's the same word. And we know what happened. He came back and they were asleep. This is not a call to be alert for Christ's return. This is not a call to look for when he will return, to try to figure out when that's going to happen. But it's a call to be ready when he does return. I promise you, there's not a person on earth that will will miss Christ's return. It's not going to be a secret. It's not going to be something that people are, are unaware of. As we said, for Christians, it will be glorious. For non-Christians, it will be dreadful. No one's going to miss it. It's going to happen, and we'll know. But it's a call to be ready when he does return. He's saying, stay alert, stay awake, so that you are ready when I come. Fulfill the task I have given to you. Do the work that has been entrusted to us. So how do we go about doing this? How do we share the gospel? The first thing you have to do is grow in your relationship with, the war, with, the, with God. I promise you, the more that you grow to love God, the more you will be compelled to be obedient to him. It is very easy to disobey people that you're not very close to. Think about it. If you see a lot of police cars lining the highways, are you more likely to follow the speed limit? Right? Because the enforcement of the law is is much more present. You're aware of what will happen if you don't listen. The closer you are to God, the more that you know him, the more that you fall in love with him, the more that you see what he has done for you, what he saved you from, the more you'll be compelled to obey because he will be there. And when you encounter lost people, you will feel the burden of what will happen to those people. The same love that compelled Christ to come is what will motivate you to share the gospel with him, to to lay aside your, your, your nervousness, to lay aside what people may think of you, to lay aside anything that might hinder you and to share the gospel because you know the one who died to save them and you love him and you want to be obedient to him. You need to pray for lost people. I guarantee you in this room, every single one of us can think of people in our lives that don't know Jesus. We need to be praying for them, that God would convict them because he is the one who saves and that we would be faithful in bringing, bringing the message. You need to learn how to share the gospel. It's not near as complicated as a lot of times I think we make it out to be. John three sixteen through 18 contains the whole gospel. For God so loved the world, he sent his only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. There's the reality we'll perish without Christ in there. There's the reality that Jesus is who saves and that God is the one who loves and initiates salvation. You need to learn to tell your story in sharing the gospel. If you look in in Acts, this is one of the the clearest things that we see. When when Paul is before the Roman officials, he shares what Jesus did in his life. He's like, hey, I was killing Christians. I was persecuting. I was on my way to do more persecution. And God stopped me in my tracks, changed my life, and saved me. And he'll save you too. The guy said, are you going to try to persuade me in such, such a short period of time to be a Christian? He said, I would rather that all be as I am, that all would believe in Christ. So here's the question you have to understand. Can you explain why you believe in Christ? Can you, with excitement and understanding, explain why you have hoped in Jesus, why you have believed? Because 
There is a major problem if we can share with confidence other decisions we make but can't adequately explain why we believe in Jesus. Over this past two years, I know that there are many Christians who did far more evangelizing for their political parties than they ever did for Jesus. If you can explain why you would vote for a political candidate over explaining why you follow Jesus, that's a problem. It shows your priorities are misaligned. We should be engaged in politics. We should care about what is happening in our world because it affects people's lives. But far more, we should be concerned with their eternity. Can you explain why you believe in Jesus? Because if you can't, why would we expect anyone else to believe it? Learn, to, to learn about those who you're sharing the gospel with. I, I would venture to say for those of you who have lived here for a long period of time, this community and this Evansville itself has changed a lot. The world's changed a lot. We have one or two options. We can lament and, and look at how things used to be and how people used to be. Or we can learn about the people who are here now. We can learn about the people who need Jesus that are around us right now and meet them where they are. And sometimes that's messy. Sometimes the people we're called to love are hard to love. But so were we. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Learn to love the people that you're sharing the gospel with. Like Christ loved us. Commit to being uncomfortable for the sake of reaching people for Christ. Today, I want to challenge you as a church to commit to being a church that is focused on reaching the lost for Christ, no matter the cost. I want to challenge you to have the attitude that's expressed in this quote by Charles Spurgeon. Oh, my brothers and sisters in Christ, if sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees imploring them to stay, not to madly destroy themselves. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled at the teeth of our exertions. And let not one go there unwarned or unprayed for. Do you look at people that way, lost people, as people that need God's love? Are you committed to doing everything you can to sharing God's love for them? Because he's coming soon, and the question we all must answer is, are you ready? Do you know him this morning? Do you know Jesus? Have you hoped in him for your salvation? Have you trusted him that he is the one who has brought you back to God, that you are a sinner? Because if you haven't, today is the day to trust in him for your salvation. We don't know when he will return. We don't know when our life will end. Today is the day to trust in him. And if you do know him, are you actively completing the task that's been entrusted to us? Are you sharing the gospel? Are you trying to get equipped to share the gospel if you're not? Let us be a church that takes the task that Christ has, has given us seriously. So as we prepare for this time of invitation, I want to challenge you to commit together to be alert and to prepare anxiously for the return of our Savior. To pray for lost people. To commit to sharing the gospel. And if you don't know him today, I'll be down front. Come ask him 
to save you. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this day that you've given us. We thank you for this time that we have to, to, to look at your word. And God, it is, it is a heavy task you have given us. And God, I pray that we would take it seriously to follow you, to share your gospel with the world. And God, I pray that if anyone here does not know you, that they would turn to you today, give their life to you, to simply acknowledge that they are a sinner, to believe that you sent, that, that Jesus came, died on the cross for our sins, and to confess him as Lord of their life. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.